Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. And so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello again. This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. I'm Hugh Wilsoncroft. Uh, it is Monday, and today, what difference has the return of fans made in Premier League football, even if it's only 2,000 inside a massive football ground? Um, not much, really, if you're at the Emirates Stadium in particular. To see pressure build on Mikel Arteta, we'll discuss him. And is this the best or the worst season ever? It seems like the Premier League has levelled out in terms of quality. Is it as good as the championship, though? That's the big question. And finally, to hug or not to hug? That is the question as well, of course, after John Stones and Harry Maguire make acquaintance once again. With me to discuss a pretty intriguing weekend, Alison Arad, Tom Clark and Gregor Robertson of The Times. How are you doing, guys? Very well. Very well, Hugh. So much football. I watched so much football this weekend. I have absolutely no idea what else happened in the world. So you guys might have to bring me up to speed with anything non-football related because it was just wall to wall for the whole weekend with all the kickoff times, a Friday night game and everything. John McCarry died and he didn't write about football as far as I know. And we're sending gunships into the channel to fight over fish as well, I think. so. Oh, I see. Something, I see. Something like that, yeah. <laughs> is that John, is that, did John le Carre write that? Uh, or? Maybe, I don't know. It's, that, oh, that, that's it's, a kind of weird year it's been, isn't it? <laughs> I see. Oh, that, that, that's actually real life. Oh, okay, okay. Well, I'll, I'll look that all up a little bit later on um, and see if I won't lose my mind over that. Lost my mind a little bit over the football as well, especially, I hate to say it, a stonewall penalty, which should have been given against Fabinho. I will not have a word spoken to say that that was not that that was not because it I, I know he touched the ball he took away the standing leg first or what would have been the standing leg if Cavalera could have put it on the ground Stonewaller Alison you were there you wrote a great piece on Fulham one Liverpool one um, and the impact of fans as well yeah yeah well the the, the referee clearly still bottled it even though it was only two thousand fans <laughs> yeah well do you want me to talk about the penalty of the fans first Hugh because that oh. was such a big question I could now talk for thirty minutes couldn't I <laughs> <laughs> why don't you tell me about the fans first and how they made that penalty not be given a little bit later on <laughs> well. It's, oh, I think we say this a lot, don't we? Oh, it's privileged to be at a ground, la di da. But it really was. I, I had it was my first match with the two thousand back, and we normally um, have a bit of a tease at Fulham fans. They get the "Where's your butler gone?" chant from West Ham fans. Their cardboard clappers are seen as a bit twee and making up for the fact they're just too posh to know how to shout obscenities. But with only 2,000, 
it was it was incredible. It was better than a full stadium because they all bought into the contract, which is you're there to support. There was not a single mumble or grumble. Every single pass, every single thought, everything a Fulham player did was cheered to the rafters, and you could see. Fulham are a strange team this season. They're a team meant to be going down, yet playing as if they've got a Champions League place uh, at stake. And they they bought into the, their style of adventurous play because they were lifted by this extreme love from, from the stands. And Fulham, it's di- it was difficult for them to organise, actually, because there's only one entrance because of the building work. So they did it beautifully. Uh, they are to be commended. And I don't... You know, one day we'll go back to it being, oh, I'm going to boo the, the, the manager's substitution. Oh, I don't agree with this. I don't agree with that. Oh, look at that misplaced pass. I'm going to boo that. It will come back. But for now, it was amazing. And I think probably, I know it's not the same in every ground. I think partly it was like that at Fulham because they, they're a team that need it. But also they wanted to connect with the club that because they, they weren't there for the promotion. So it was a sort of double celebration, if you like. Um, and also, I think if you give everything on the pitch, the fans do do respond. So it was the perfect storm of uh, a really quite beautiful relationship. I've been to a game with fans and I totally agree with what Alison has to say there. I think um, it was the best of football fans and it was only the best of football fans and it was totally positive and maybe uh, it's a similar position because I was at Wickham, we mentioned it already on the podcast, but that's also a team that, that got promoted and so maybe it was a bit of a celebration on the first game back as well. Um, but there are those that argued it would skew the competition and, and maybe not just having fans back is going to skew the competition but having nicer fans might skew the competition as well, Tom. You know, if you're a Fulham player, you're going to have a much better time of it, I think, than, than certain other clubs who I won't name. Well, I, I, you'll be shocked, but allow me to bring a little bit of cynicism to proceedings. Um, I, I've always been a little bit sceptical about the whole 12th man. Oh, they sucked the ball over the line, blah, blah, blah. But I mean, it, it, it's, it's been nice to see because it clearly did make a massive difference. And in relation to Fulham, I mentioned on the podcast a few weeks ago watching their game against Everton, uh, where they got back to 3-2 and you know, seemingly just passed the ball left and right for 20 minutes and didn't really have a shot on goal. And I said then I felt fans must have made it would have made a difference. Uh, and it's clear that they they have. I do think it's interesting watching this weekend talking about the games in which we feel fans made a difference and the size of stadium, because obviously that's gonna be a bit of a factor in the number of people that can get in and yes Arsenal were terrible etc etc but it's it's much easier for 2,000 people to make a noise in a stadium like Craven Cottage or Selhurst Park where the capacity is around 25,000 than it is for 2,000 or even 4,000 to make a good amount of noise in a big echoey Emirates uh, stadium so uh, yeah I think I think it's fantastic and I also think for teams like Fulham and Crystal Palace, it's perhaps a little bit easier for fans to be positive, particularly in those games. You know, Fulham were excellent against the champions. When you're back at a match for the first time, you, you're going to have to be a really, you're going to have to be as grumpy as me to find something to moan about, aren't you really? When Fulham play as well as they did, have been poor, they look like they're improving. Players like Ruben Loftus-Cheek coming into the team, making a difference you're going to have to be a really, really miserable sod to find something to be to moan about. But having said that, with the amount of games coming, I'm sure they'll find something pretty soon. 
but you know we have to we have to also be aware that you know these tiers can change and it might all be taken away from us which we hope obviously hope not won't be true but um yeah i let's enjoy it while it lasts to put it that way i'm not really having the the advantage either i mean it's it's just as kind of invigorating having a hostile crowd being the away team uh, I knew you'd no, say I that. I re- I knew you'd say that. I was going to ask you, you know, what difference does it make to have nice fans versus angry fans? And I knew you'd prefer the angry fans. <laughs> Why'd you say that here? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it, it's good going behind enemy lines. It's good kind of going and steal. It's nothing better than a wee win. It's better stealing points and, you know, at someone else's, someone, someone else's turf than, than what is more expected. At, you know, there's, al- there's almost more pressure often on the home set. It depends on the dynamic of the game. And as we say, Fulham are playing against Liverpool, the champions. So um, they're going to be right behind their team. But uh, that, undoubtedly, the support, presence of supporters there will have been a boost to Liverpool too. I mean, Liverpool, whether it's home or away, it doesn't matter. Having fans back in the ground, I think, you know, you've heard all the players come out and say it afterwards, you say, you know, I think it was Everton, was it Calvert-Lewin I was reading? He was saying that, you know, we weren't entirely sure what it was going to be like, whether we would be able to hear much, you know, hear them much. And then we came out and, and crikey, they made a hell of a racket and it was great. So, you know, I think, I think everyone is, is really enjoying having them back and, and obviously the fans as well. Mentioned a little bit earlier on, although it was a good result for Fulham, that it could have really been more against Liverpool. That I personally think the referees, VAR, whatever you want to call it, shirked. A big decision. It should have been a penalty against Fabinho, in my opinion. I know he touched the ball, but he went through the leg to get it. That's how I've seen it. Alison Rudd, you know, completely unbiased view on this. What did you think? Unbiased view was it was a penalty. I'm absolutely astonished that after such a long delay and clearly they're replaying it and replaying it and they're telling Andre Mariner in his ear, oh, I think, oh, it might be. And then he goes to have a look. I... What did he see when he looked? And uh, it, yeah, I'm biased. And yet, okay, Graeme Stunis thinks it was a penalty. I think it was a penalty. It must have been a penalty. Can't say any better than that. You almost don't need to ask me, Ian Gregor. You thought it was a penalty? I mean, by the letter of the law, but I'm glad it wasn't given. What? Absolutely. What do you mean you're glad it wasn't given? Well, I don't. I, VAR was introduced to, to correct clear and obvious errors. And no it one, was. when that happened, I don't think. Would, could be certain that, that was a penalty, or even thought it was. It looked like he. You took his standing leg away. No, I think there's. This is one of these ones where it's like, do we really want the the game to be refereed like this? And every decision, like these minute, in, infinitesimal, fractional challenges. Not necessarily, but it is being. That's that's slightly the point, isn't it? And particularly for a team like Fulham, who are going to be in a relegation battle and have, you know, missed out probably on two points because of it you would say that, yeah, you probably do in a season where Man United are getting penalties given after the final whistle and, it, it, you know, it's all in context. No, we don't. I would rather not have any of it. But if we're going to have video interference, it's surely going to be have to come in for a moment where a player has his standing leg taken away, isn't it? Not for me, no. Yeah. I I just... Exactly, exactly, Tom. The very idea that VAR would introduce some sort of uh, benchmark of truth. It, it's not even doing that, is it? It's not even interfering correctly when it interferes. Well, the El Nelly, El Nelly one as well. Like Xhaka jumps up, grabs someone by the throat. El Nelly pushes 
Tarkovsky in his face. That's a, I, I, I didn't understand that either, really. I mean, that got lost in all the Arsenal uh, mayhem that went on at the Emirates. But that was another one where I was watching it and thinking, oh, God, they're down to nine here. And it was just like yellow card. So it's a yellow card to double push someone in, you know, two hands in their face. But it's a red card to grab someone by the throat. I, d- I didn't get that either. But go back Not- to the Fulham one. Did you, you thought at that moment when he made the challenge, it was a penalty? I thought that looks that if if he'd blown and given a penalty in real time, I thought. Did oh, you right, think it was okay. a penalty at the moment yeah. when he saw it at yeah. full speed? You did. Yeah. I didn't. I mean, because he went through his standing foot to the and then his foot hit the ball out. We all do it, don't we? We go to a live game as a fan, or every, you you go, ah, oh, that's a penalty. One replay was enough. VAR watched it about eighteen times, and apparently it wasn't a penalty. And look, there's a few people, there's quite a few people out there that think it wasn't a penalty because Fabinho touched the ball. No one denies that he touched the ball. The point is, unless he kicked the, the what would have been the standing foot of Ivan Cavallero because it would have planted on the ground and he would have crossed the ball, he's basically stopped, he's, he's taken the player off his feet in the box, in my opinion. That's a foul. I just, I just hate what, you know, the path we're going down here. I hate how many dives we're seeing now as well. How it's not a dive. No, but I know it's not a dive, but it's so easy to buy to get a penalty now. It's so easy, and or even the it, like Salah got <laughs> Robinson came up behind him and kind of laid his hands like feather like, kind of laid them on the back of his jersey, and he tries to fall forward. And I'm trying, I'm doing a movement here. It's not doesn't work on our podcast. You almost knocked but, your laptop off the desk. Oh yeah, and he headbutted it. He they stumbled forward, and you know he's clearly trying to buy the foul. It's not foul. It's not a foul. There's too many people trying to buy fouls. That, um, that's, I'm going down a different avenue here now, but uh, even the, the the one with Chilwell, the Chelsea's penalty this weekend. I mean, you, you now have to completely avoid any player in the box. You can't come close to them. You can't even come within their kind of a couple of yard radius because if, if they run across you and fall over, they'll get a penalty. This all builds, I think, Gregor, into a conversation we're going to have a little bit later on this week's pod about why I think this is probably the worst uh, season so far in the Premier League. Um, the fans, though, I think at Fulham still enjoyed the draw, even though it could have been worse. But but one place where I'm not sure the return of the fans was quite uh, the boost it may have been, like it was at Craven Cottage, was actually at the Emirates Stadium. Uh, Tom Roddy observing in the Times today uh, that full time was met with booze. Mikel Arteta's Arsenal losing one. 1-0 to Burnley, not helped, of course, by a straight red card for midfielder Granite Xhaka, who has uh, definitely incurred the wrath of the Arsenal fans. But Arsenal have now lost four straight league games at home for the first time since December of 1959. Call that a crisis, if you will. They've only scored 10 goals in their 12 Premier League games so far, and they sit 15th in the table. And I know we spoke about Arsenal's football of late, but a lot of question marks. Now, it's hard for us to avoid it over Mikel Arteta's position at the moment, the 38-year-old manager of Arsenal. I am in the camp of sticking with Arteta come what may, as long as they stay up. And I genuinely mean that. If they're not in the relegation zone, um, then you've got to stick with him. You brought in a young, experienced manager. He has to be given time and certainly transfer windows if he's going to transform the club. Um, uh, Tom Clark. Stick with him, come what may, or is this really time to to push the button, especially with the games they've got coming up? This match was the first time I've started to wonder, oh, has this has this guy got has this guy got it? I'm not I'm not jumping on the kind of it's time to consider his position 
uh, stance yet because I do think when we reflect back over his tenure, short as it is, there are various things to consider. You know, he he's, it looks like now he almost shot himself in the foot by winning the FA Cup and by doing quite well in those games because that gave it kind of delusions of them being better than they are. We've also discussed on this podcast the quality of the squad and the players that he's got. I just not at a level where you'd be wanting to compete with even, you know, the Leicesters of the league. Um, never mind uh, the other big, the so-called uh, big six rivals. But yesterday was the first match where I've watched an Arteta team and thought, mm, I'm not. This is not particularly convincing. Unlike, say, compare it to the Leeds match, where a similar thing happened. A silly decision by a player, red card down to ten men. That match, they, I, I said afterwards, I praised them for their organisation, for their spirit, all those things like that, and they actually could have scored a few goals on the counter attack and maybe even nicked a win with ten men away at Leeds. Yesterday, they looked completely clueless and devoid of all ideas. And I, I'm slightly, I'd be slightly concerned if I was an Arsenal fan about his tweaking and changing of tactics. I mean, I'm not professing to be anywhere near Mikel Arteta's knowledge of football, but I'm not sure Alexander Lacazette is a number ten behind a striker. Um, and that 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 seems like a tactical tweak that's uh, that should be consigned to the bin. So I, I, I'm I'm very much in the still stick with him camp. But I, it, this game was the first time I started to doubt uh, doubt the process, should we say. What do you think, Alison, about... Um, you, you? I'm sure you've seen managers come in and, and be fired very quickly, whether that uh, is the best thing for a club, a club the size of Arsenal as well. I'm not sure it would have happened that, that a manager gets such a short time in charge. Um, could that possibly change things? I agree with Tom. There felt like, it felt slightly like a watershed moment, actually. Not least because um, did you notice how Arteta had sort of rings around his eyes and he looked a bit gaunt yeah. and he a looked shell shocked. Yeah, he looked, he looked like he couldn't quite believe it. And I, my, my, I hope this doesn't happen. But I, I just, I have a worry on his behalf that we're now entering that dangerous zone where managers start saying. There's nothing more I can do. I'm giving it my all. And they look slightly bewildered. And then you give the board a big question, don't you? There's there's a problem for them then because he's not, the manager is not emanating a sense of, don't worry, these are inevitable teething problems because I know the path I'm treading. I know I know it's going to be tough before it gets better. He's not, Arteta is not emanating that anymore. So, I, I again in a matter of days I've gone from thinking he's unsackable to thinking he looks like a man who could who, who doesn't he's, he's not giving me the argument that he knows how to get out of this hole and and the other problem at Arsenal is that each and it's the reason we keep talking about them on this podcast because <laughs> let's let the listeners in on a secret every single one we say let's not talk about Arsenal again and then somebody <laughs> says I think we're going to have to and the reason for that is because they're in this this dreadful spiral where there is there aren't there, there, are, there are an insufficient rays of hope and an awful lot of things that you think wow really did that happen now really where's their where's their sense of camaraderie their sense of rising to the fact it's the first game with fans back no no I know what we'll do we'll just make the fans have something more to boo I mean this is this is something really there's something really amiss there at that club and 
uh, football, as you say, Hugh, is littered with uh, decisions that seem harsh and, wow, really, he's been sacked. But now I wouldn't be surprised. As Alison's already pointed out, Gregor, I ask ridiculously long questions with no real gist. <laughs> um, but, but, but let me ask you a, a double-pronged question because I, w- I wanted your view on tactics um, to begin with. Uh, in the build-up to this game, um, me and my Arsenal mates were having a long conversation. I basically said, I will venture, by the way, Tom Clark into criticising his tactics, that Mikel Arteta should just be hard to beat at the moment. So play five at the back, play the two holding midfielders, get criticised for not being adventurous, but don't lose to Burnley. Just don't lose to Burnley. I mean, that was it. I mean, I know that's not very inspiring for Arsenal fans, but just don't lose. Um, and I wondered what your view on his approach in the game was, whether you were, you were happy with it. And then secondly, I did want to come back to you on that a point about whether he needs support going forward and whether he should stay at least until the end of the season. Well, let me start with the second one then, because I think you've got to, we have got to like zone out for a moment and, you know, consider some of the, the madness that has happened at Arsenal. I mean, the amount of kind of change upstairs, you know, hiring Edu, imposing pay cuts on the players when the pandemic came, you know, they were one of the only clubs to really, he, he took an active role in that as well, making him, up for, for some reason, change from a head coach to a manager, uh, the redundancies, overhauling the, the scouting system. Um, Gunnosaurus. Obama Young, yeah, Gunnosaurus. <laughs> Obama Young's massive new contract. Uh, this is now the worst start in 39 years, I think. You know, you go back further to, you know, Xhaka's kind of redeemed himself briefly, but, you know, all that vitriol that was swirling around beforehand with him, the whole Ozil thing, there's a lot of, a, a huge, it's a huge mess at Arsenal. And so, you know, he, Tom's kind of right. He did come in and, and almost exceed expectations in the in the short term. Um, but I agree with you. I think, I think you know, that it he, he, he was a pragmatist in those, in those early weeks, he kind of changed. He didn't want to play, you know, three or five at the back and and be. A, I don't think he's. Everyone says he's a defensive-minded coach. He's not. I don't think he's going to be a defensive-minded coach. He just realised that's what he had to do in order for this kind of chaotic Arsenal, who had who left massive holes in midfield and in defence, to win some games. But now it's like he's. He's determined to go to to start to play the the type of football he wants to play, but uh, but Arsenal don't have players that are good enough to do it. So I think he has got to. I agree with you. You know, he's he's changed the system again and trying to play Lacazette in a number ten and you know have have more players up the field in support of Aubameyang to try and be more creative and score more goals, and it's failed miserably. So he's got to be hard to beat. I agree with you. Um, and you know, it's true. Something did change. He does look like, you know, even that whole that whole interview with uh, Jeff Reeves about you know scratching your head, like I'm scratching my head every day. That's not a good look, is it? That's not a good image to kind of conjure up. Mikel scratching his head every day. What do I do now? Um, and he's he does look a little bit dazed, dazed by it all, and like what what can I do to change this now? But I, you know, again personally, I think you look at Arsenal's team. I've said this before many times, and they're still relying on Granite Xhaka, who is a loose cannon. And he, he had a small kind of flourish, but he's regressed to what we know Granite Xhaka is, going around kicking people stupidly and then trying to fight them because he kicked them. Like, 
He's a, he's a complete loose cannon. He needs to be out of Arsenal's football club. And there are numerous players like that. I mean, he, I don't know. I just don't want to go through them all again because we've done it before. There are very few players in that team who are good enough to play for Arsenal. I know that sounds very basic and kind of, you know, there's no real deep insight there, but that's the truth. Yes, you could draw more of them. Yes, there might be some who are thinking, you know, this this guy's asked, you know, Arteta's a bit of a a disciplinarian or a, we're not, you know, we were on board in early, but now he's a bit, he's a bit sullen and moody. You know, it does look like there might be an issue of kind of, is there a fracture between him and, this group of players now because he's asking too much of them and they're not they're not performing so when that happens you instinctively as a player go you know, it's almost self-protection it, it, he's he's asking too much of us he's not he's not the right man for the job you know we're the we're the players here move them on so that I, there's a kind of sense that that might be starting to happen but we've been here before these players have moved on several managers now they're not good enough it's them that need to go. He needs to be supported in January. It sounds, Gregor, like you're slating granite. That's all I want to say. You're waving there. <laughs> Quick, I've, got a joke. I've got a joke. I was waiting for that absolute piece of magic from Alison Roth. There you go. But is there not a little bit with that where I can understand why Arsenal fans are starting to have that kind of, mm, this, are you, are you sure? Because you can almost cut his, his time in two chunks, can't you? You've got, the initial takeover bit where things are so low that there's almost nothing he can do wrong. He brings a bit of impetus. He's shouting and running around on the touchline. He wins the FA Cup and everyone's going, oh, how's he done it with these players? It's brilliant. And he's counter-attacking and Aubameyang scoring great goals. But then it's like, okay, right, well, now what are you going to do? And David Luiz gets a new contract and Cedric gets a new contract. Yes, and That's part of the madness. He brings in, I know the, we live in this age of technical directors and all this kind of stuff, Willian is probably his big name signing. Everyone's like, oh, they've nicked Willian from Chelsea and he's not been great. He was, I thought he had a quite a good start to the season, but he's not been great since. And so that's when you then... It's easy to... to pick, a lot of people are picking up on that now. I think most of us would have said, Willian on a free transfer, two-year deal, question marks about that, but Willian on a free transfer, good signing. And it's not happened. That's not his fault. I agree, but I'm not, I'm not saying it is his fault. I'm just talking about what gets then attached to you. Like you know, like one of the yeah. star players of his of his early time at Arsenal. When you think back to that FA Cup run, is Emmy Martinez, the goalkeeper who came in for when Leno was injured, and he left and has gone to Aston Villa. And I'm not saying that he's definitely a better goalkeeper than Bernd Leno, but you look at that and think, well, that's not looking like a great bit of business. There's he's not had that thing of where now there's something more attached to him in this season where you're going. That's an Arteta thing. That's what he's done. That's what he's done. You know, if we were to compare it to, and I don't want to get into this, but, you know, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, but he has things like, well, he shipped out Sanchez. He shipped out Lukaku. He given Rashford and Greenwood. You know, he has that attached to him, at least, to go, well, I did that. that I've, that's a good thing. The fans are on board with that. Arteta needs one of those moments, doesn't he, now, in the next coming months, weeks? He needs a he needs a decision. Play a youngster change system, drop this guy, say Xhaka's never going to play again. He needs something to you know, make a, make a standing point about his, uh, his reigns so far this season, I think. And uh, let's not forget that Solskjaer had far more managerial experience 
than Arteta did when he came in. I think he was Arteta was praised by virtue of his association association with eh, praised by virtue of his association with Pep Guardiola. That is not being the man in charge. And he speaks well and he's clearly very intelligent and has the ambition to be one of the great managers. And his emotional connection to Arsenal uh, is, is, you know, it's great. It's great for the storybooks. But actually, he's come into a very difficult club. Just listen to Gregor's list of the things you have to deal with. Why on earth is someone with no managerial experience having to deal with those things? This is a job for someone with, you know, Wenger-like experience, someone who knows how to handle hierarchies and player contracts and who might suspect that if you've got a player who leaves one club where he's very happy because all they'll offer him is a two-year contract because he wants a three-year contract, that might backfire on how he performs week in, week out, don't you think? But if you're a new manager, you might not know that. If I was an Arsenal fan, my one thing, one kind of query about it would be, you know, like Nagelsmann said, what, what, what are you laughing at? <laughs> that there's only one query? <laughs> if, I, if I was an Arsenal fan. If I was fan, an Arsenal like, fan, nice on, one. <laughs> but, you know, like, do you, I think, Nag- was it Nagelsmann who said that being a, being a manager or being a head coach is 70% people skills? And there's just that, you know, that kind of flint of doubt that he is engaging the players now. And that's, once you've lost that, it's very hard to get it back. So, and again, you know, that's partly these these guys seem to not want to play for, or not, they're either not good enough or they don't want to play for, they, they're kind of happy to blame the manager for, uh, or not, you know, not buy into what is their, on a, over a consistent period, what is they're trying to do. So, I still think it's the players predominantly, but there is something that's like he's quite cold and he looks shell shocked at the moment. He doesn't know which way to turn, and that's you know it's hard to it's quite hard to come back from that. It is that sad thing about appearances, everything. And when Jacker got sent off, the camera panned to him on the touchline, and he looked as if he was thinking, "Oh crap!" And then something in his mind went, "Wait, wait, wait! What does the textbook say you do now?" Oh no, you shout and you clap and you give yeah, encouragement. I'll yeah. do that. I'll do that quick, quick. Right, come on, lads! See, earlier we can do it. Here we go. <laughs> and it just looked, it looked so forced. It looked, you know, come on, mate, you're not kidding anyone. Like it would have been better for him to go sit down and put his head in his hands. That would have felt a bit more um, sincere. But it's, it, this is the thing, isn't it? This is why it's such a bloody difficult. We're not actually necessarily even talking about. We've talked about all the things he's got wrong and what's going wrong. It's not even really about his management. We don't. We don't even into that necessarily, apart from slightly questioning his tactics. It's the, all the other stuff that's going on at Arsenal could sink Mikel Arteta before we even know whether he's a good manager or not. Exactly. Yeah. That's the position he's in, and it, that's why it's such a difficult job. Um, that he took on at Arsenal. And as I say, he'd, he'd probably go back, he'd probably wish he would lost the FA Cup final because, um, and he's got, bloody hell, they've got a tough run of fixtures now. Southampton, Everton, Man City, Chelsea. Not going to be a Merry Christmas. Yeah, well, you're the one that said in the next few months, and I was going to ask you if you think you even get through <laughs> the next next month, let alone month, uh, with those fixtures coming up. Um, uh, it's one of those things. I do think Mikel Arteta's in danger of overthinking the job. Maybe he thought that that this managerial position when he one day got it was going to be this, you know, massive thing where you have to be excellent in every regard. I saw a meme yesterday of Sam Allardyce sitting in front of, you know, giving a press conference at Arsenal and an Arsenal fan saying, never thought I'd be wishing for this. 
But there is part of me that thinks, you know, you, you haven't got incredible players. So stop trying to play incredible football, you know? And um, like I say, I, I would like to see him reduce what they're trying to do on the pitch to being solid. Because even though Gregor says they haven't got the squad for it, I still look at... Um, their game against Burnley and go, who's got the better squad? You know, whose team would I rather have? And I think I would, I would still edge it in terms of quality of player with Arsenal, but in terms of manager and in terms of approach, it's got to be Burnley. But then I think there'd be a chance of, we'd be on here talking about Arsenal nil, Burnley nil, and we'd be saying Arsenal haven't scored again. And Mikel, what is he doing? He's, I thought he was supposed to be Pep's protege and da, 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 da. So there's an element of where, as a manager, you have to set your stall out and say, "This is this is my way of playing." You know, we talk about style and ethos and all that kind of stuff. It, it, it works the other way as well, and it could work against him if he said, "Right, well, I've I've got a crap bunch of players. I'm going to play inverted commas crap football," and then everyone will go, "Well, I don't rate this guy that much. He's not doing very much for us." Whereas he, he can then try the other way, and then you can go, "Well, it's it's not me. I want them to play this way. I've just you know I've got Rob Holding in defence." You know, I've not got a Merrick Laporte, so I can't play out from the back. I'm glad to know that Mikel Arteta is going to select his team based on what we judge him on in terms of the podcast. So it should be five at the back from here on out, Tom. Next game they play, I'm going to be straight on the ringer to tell you that clearly I'm the person inspiring Mikel Arteta. Um, it should Listen, I, I, I wonder what the future is for Mikel Arteta. I personally hope that he stays in the role because I just don't think you give that opportunity to someone as young and inexperienced as him and then say, you go have, you know, less than a year in charge. I just don't, don't see it for me. And it, and it would play into all the things that Gregor said about the club being a bit of a mess and having no direction. So you've, you've made a choice stick with it as far as I'm concerned. Um, we'll move on next. Arsenal at the moment playing their part, I think in a, an interesting season. Is it the worst though, or is it the best season ever? I think it's a more level playing field. They're definitely playing a part in that. Is it a five-star season, though? Uh, speaking of which, yeah, you really should give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcast or whichever you use. Make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss the next episode. Go online, search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game, and you'll get yourself one month free. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
Well, there's sad, sad news hitting us on the game football podcast this Monday morning. Uh, former Liverpool manager Gerard Houllier has sadly passed away at the age of 73. Uh, the Frenchman, many will remember, uh, managed Liverpool from 1998 to 2004. Remember winning five major trophies, including the FA Cup, League Cup and the UEFA Cup treble in 2000-2001 season. Uh, prior to Liverpool, Houllier had managed Lons, Paris Saint-Germain and the French national team. His last managerial job was at Aston Villa as well. He left in, in 2011 following heart problems. Uh, in a statement, Liverpool said today they were deeply saddened by Julier's death. They say we are mourning the passing of our treble winning manager. The thoughts of everyone at Liverpool Football Club are with Gerrard's family and many friends. And Aston Villa said all at Aston Villa are deeply saddened to learn of the passing of Gerrard. Julier, our thoughts are with Gerrard's loved ones at this incredibly difficult time. Jamie Carragher, the former Liverpool defender, has said, absolutely devastated by the news about Gerard Houllier. I was in touch with him only last month to arrange him coming to Liverpool. I love that man to bits. He changed me as a person and as a player and got LFC back winning trophies. RIP boss. This is a real, real sad one. And Alisson, I know you had and covered Liverpool at the time, but you had a, a close relationship with Gerard Houllier. Tell us a little bit more about what it was like to work with him and what he meant to you. Yeah, no, I'm very sad. Um, on a person, just on a personal level, I used to, for the times, be on Liverpool in Europe duty, which made no sense at all because I lived in London. And um, Julier was aware that I wasn't part of the, the Merseyside group and always made time for me at press conferences and on trips to check I was having a good time, um, enjoying enjoying myself, um, which when you're feeling a bit isolated, the only woman, the only woman in the gang and also not part of the usual group, because I didn't, I didn't do league games up there. It was, um, it was just really lovely to have someone who just put their arm around you and said, you know, how's it going? And asked for your, you know, even asked my opinion on matches and things. And one, one day, um, Liverpool had, uh, had just, uh, beaten Olympic Ljubljana 3-0 and um, I bumped into him on the stairs afterwards and he said uh, did you enjoy the game and I said I did I said it's a good thing you won he said why is that I said it's it's my birthday today so he laughed and then um, and then it was the press conference and uh, in the press conference I, he, it was the day he made Stephen Gerrard captain of Liverpool and in the press conference, no one seemed to be asking about this. So I said, uh, I said, Gerrard, what's wrong with Sammy Hoopier? <laughs> Won't you be rather cross now? And um, I got a few glares from some of the, the Merseyside chaps. Maybe it was a slightly aggressive question. I don't know. But Hulier answered it really beautifully and said, you know, he had captains all over the pitch and Hupio was still his defensive captain. Uh, he just felt it was the right time for Stevie G. And then we went into the press room and we were all wrapping up our reports. And um, a Liverpool sort of bouncer type tapped me on the shoulder and said, Gerard Julien wants a word with you. And all the chaps in the press room gave me that look as if to say, you're going to get a bollocking. So I went out and thought, ooh, maybe I overstepped the mark. And Julien came out of the dressing room with, Stephen Gerrard's shirt and said this is the shirt Stephen Gerrard has worn 
as captain of Liverpool for the first time, and I would like you to have it for your birthday present. And uh, <laughs> first thing I did was smell it to check it was real, and then uh, said thank you, very, thank you very much, thank you very much, Gerard. And uh, that, I mean, he, I mean, to be in the middle of match day and to remember that somebody mentioned it was their birthday and then give you such a significant present because he was aware of how tricky it was not being part of the gang, I will always be grateful to him for that. He made what could have been a difficult part of my career absolutely beautiful. So thank you, Gerard Houllier. Lots of lovely tributes being paid to Gerard Houllier uh, as well today. Uh, Former Liverpool midfielder, of course, Danny Murphy uh, saying, I can't even put into words the impact he made on my career. I'm the person I am now because of him. Uh, Ian Rush as well, Liverpool legend, says, devastated at the passing of Gerard Houllier, a true gentleman of the game, uh, always put others first. And Michael Owen as well, uh, former Liverpool striker with whom uh, Hulier had so much success. Uh, he has been on social media today to pay his tributes as well. He says, absolutely heartbroken to hear that my old boss, Gerard Hulier, has sadly passed away. A great manager. And as Alison has already pointed out, he says, a genuinely caring man. Uh, very sad news today about the passing of the former Liverpool and Aston Villa manager, Gerard Hulier. Now, the measure of what a dreary season it has been uh, is surely that Gilfie Sigurdsson is not just getting a run out at the moment, captaining Everton as well. Happy 2016, guys. Uh, The top 10 in the Premier League are separated by seven points at the moment. The top 10 in the Championship separated by 11 points. I'm just going to say it, guys. The Premier League has become the championship. The level of quality from top to bottom is as close as it has been for a long, long, long time. And that's as bad as Sheffield United are as well. I only heard the words Gilfie and Sigurdsson in that little preamble. So I will point out that at last, his manager seems to have realised what he can bring to the party. And that is you have to put him in complete charge, not just the captain's armband, but the fact that he ran he ran the game and he was able to run the game because James Rodriguez was not there. Um, and that he doesn't Gilby Sigerson is an absolute genius of a player who covers a lot of ground. You don't you don't get many of those. I would also point out you will not get a cooler penalty scored or scored all season either. It was the most if you want to ever show kids how to do a penalty and how to give the eyes and not look at the ball, Gilby Sigerson did it. But I know you're all chuckling away in the background and I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> ignoring it because on a serious level, on a serious level, that, that, was, that, that game was all about the ability of Carlo Ancelotti to rethink what he was doing and restart Everton's season. And at the end of the game, he and Gilfie walked off together having one of those sort of intellectual discussions that you get between a captain and a manager sometimes where the manager feels that his you know his team is in good hands with the man who's in charge on the pitch and I sincerely hope from now on we get to see the real Gilfie Sigurdsson who all he needs is responsibility and if his manager can give him that then Everton could possibly finish in the top four or five. 
I mean, that's a shout. That's a, that is a shout. You know, just leave it up to Gilfie and we will be in the top four or five. Um, I, you have to go and interview Carlo Ancelotti and put that to him because I do want to know his response to that. Hopefully he's a listener of the pod and hopefully in the midweek press conference. Tom Clark, sort this out. We want the question asked. Does Gilfie Sigerson need to play more? I, I want to know. I want to know. Um, but I think the fact that Gilfie's having an impact actually plays into my argument that this is now the championship uh, because the English second tier, often hard to call, typified by teams' fortunes, swinging one way or the other from season to season. As a little bit earlier on, we pointed out, Arsenal are now showing us. And for many people... This means the Premier League is more interesting. You know, you've got the likes of Southampton, West Ham, Villa doing great stuff. You've got some big teams not doing great, of course. I'd say Man United, Man City still not doing as expected. And of course, Arsenal as well. But there's a part of me that thinks it's the worst Premier League season ever. Not for the quality of football, but look, it's been a tough year for everyone. And there's a fatigue to it. There's a malaise at times with it. There's an inconsistency to a lot of the teams as well. And all that's building towards a very tight league. But I just don't think there's any team that's particularly good, if I'm perfectly honest. Uh, Tom Clark, what do you think? I think you're just worried about too much competition for Man United's Europa League spot. That's what it is. You're thinking, oh God, we're going to be 10th and it'll be justified. No, I mean, I, I, I strongly disagree. I mean, as well, from a fan of a football league team who views the Premier League... In a in very much in a work sense, and obviously also enjoys it as a as a neutral fan. I think it's great. It's been fantastic watching teams like West Ham this season uh, beat teams uh, that are supposedly above them. Southampton. It's always great to watch Southampton against any team, whether it's a team that are supposed to be better than them, or it's a team like Sheffield United. Watching how they unpicked a Sheffield United team who were clearly just set up trying to get a nil nil was was fascinating to watch and. I think it's brilliant and we have to be careful to do to do it down too much because we had these moments in the last recent seasons where Leicester pull off the amazing shock and everyone's going isn't this great and now we've got a season of where it's really tight there's not much to separate anyone and we're going to start slagging it off it's fantastic but you know we'll have Leicester in the Champions League Southampton in the Europa League West Ham above Man United Villa in mid-table Let's enjoy it. It's fantastic. I mean, it's it's much it's a, it's much harder for you, Hugh. I know because you're you're a fan of one of the teams. No, I'm not. I'm not trying. I'm not trying. I'm actually for once. I'm not trying to wind you up. I'm. I mean, it is genuinely hard. It's much, this is much easier for me to say. But from my point of view, it's great. And also, what I would say is, <laughs> maybe Gregor can shed a bit of light on this as well. We said this at the start of the season with the amount of games we were going to have. You, as a fan and as someone who works in football. You are saying, God, there's a lot of games. I agree with you. I'm looking at the fixtures and going, my God, there's more games Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. As a player, even though it's your job and you love it and that's what you got into it for, there must be an element of, oh my God, there's a lot of games going on here. And that's got to play a part as well. And fans are only just coming back. And I think it's understandable. And I still think the quality of football is pretty good. And I think there's plenty to be enjoyed. And and imagine like the... The finale could be pretty spectacular. Well, I think I think everything that's been said is true. It has been sort of tired and fatigued, and a lot of games have been, oh my god, this is awful. Uh, you know, the two teams look like they're knackered and there's very little quality on show. And then other ones have been absolute helter skelter classics with you know slapstick mistakes. And um, 
So, you know, that that kind of half of it is a bit dull to watch sometimes and half of it is wildly entertaining. I mean, you look at the table, you go, crikey, this is exciting. And as I say, when you get to, if this continues and it's still going to be tight, and you know, the end of the season could be, could be fantastic. It could be so much to play for. And, you know, as long as you've got a title race too, that's always going to create excitement. But I, you know, I think, I think there's different le- levels to this too. I think teams like Villa have improved massively. West Ham have improved massively. Crystal Palace, everyone writes them off, but they've been playing brilliant. You know, they were a joy to watch against Spurs for some of that. Signing a player like Eze, who's been, you know, a joy to watch, brilliant fit for them. Um, you know, these teams look like they're going to be comfortable in the table this season. Even Newcastle, with all the rubbish swirling around there and the fact that they've had to shut down their training ground for a week or whatever, they come back and, and secure a great win and Steve Bruce is doing a good job there. I think some of the teams who we expected to be kind of drawn into the, in, you know, in and around the relegation battle have, have improved undoubtedly. And then at the same time, Man United and Man City, you watched them at the weekend and you thought this is, you know, these teams have fallen from from what we expect of them. Um, and Spurs are a surprise package. So there's been a lot, of, a lot of surprises, I think, as well. But there's no doubt, I don't think we'll ever really be able to, to kind of quantify what, the strangeness of this season is, you know, the effects of it. I think there are some psychological ones on the players, some kind of physical about the fatigue as well. But it's just been a crazy year. So, you know, but I'm enjoying it. There's also got to be an element of the access that we've now got as armchair football fans to all these games. If you think about previously, there weren't as many games televised. You know, yesterday we had like four games in a row. Bang, 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 bang. And if you think that that didn't used to happen, if if you're a season ticket holder of any club, you probably reflect back on a season and go, well, there were five classics and, oh God, what was the score against that team? I, I, I think, yes, there is probably a little bit of fatigue and things and maybe a bit of that is affecting the quality. But I also think we're seeing so much more of the games. You know, it's gone are the days of watching Match of the Day where a clever editor has made a really boring one-all draw look really exciting because they've put in that 10 minutes in the second half where they had a few back-to-back chances. That's a, that's an element of it as well, where we're seeing so much more of it because it's all televised and it's all live all the time. Football, football, football. It's like that Mitchell and Webb sketch. Football, all the time. <laughs> Never-ending football. That's what it feels like. But with that comes... You see it all and you see, you realise that in this high stakes game, sometimes it can be a bit boring and a bit dull. So, uh, you know, but I still think there's lots, lots to be enjoyed. Uh, Tony Cascarino's written in the Times, the pack schedule's taking its toll on managers as well as players as well. I wonder, is everyone just tired at the moment? Um, the players included, like you say, but 25 points and you can't run away from facts, guys. 25 points is the fewest number of points for the league leaders after 12 games since 1997. 78 points won the title that year. Manchester City got more than that last season. Of course, Liverpool got 99 points as champions last year. Alisson, it's just not the same level. Let's be honest. It's just not the same level this season. There's lots of factors, but we've got to admit, even if it's more entertaining, that the, the teams aren't quite as good. Well, who knew a pandemic is a great leveller? I, I think you're being a bit a bit mean-spirited, Hugh. I think they the clubs are all actually performing better than I thought they would, given the factors going into the season. And yes, 
Um, but but yes, team, certain teams are not playing as well as they did in previous recent seasons. But that is the nature of football. You don't get one club the same throughout. They ebb and flow. I mean, there was always going to come a time when Pep Guardiola signed a new contract and Man City looked a bit meh. And I think we've we've come to that moment. Their approach in the Manchester derby was um, on the verge of embarrassing, I think. But that in itself is an interesting thing. I don't find that annoying. I don't think, oh, uh, football isn't what it used to be. I just think, well, isn't that fascinating that, you know, this is, this is there's a set of circumstances and one particular manager has chosen to go down this route. Uh, it's, there is enough beauty left. There are enough lovely goals. There's enough um, robust defending and clever midfield play for this not to be a shabby season. I would say there's, 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 a, there's a lot a lot to commend it. And when we come to do highlight reels of this season, I think it'll be more jam-packed with wonder than than you might imagine, Hugh, actually. One thing I would add is that, you know, everyone, a lot of fans kind of sneer when when they talk about the, the schedule and the, the workload and the players and what, you know. But we're not seeing as many of them, the best players on the pitch. Look at Liverpool's team. You know, even Jota's out for two months now, I think. Matic went off. They've, played, they've got a patched up team of kids and players playing out of position and stuff. So, you know, we, a lot of people sneer about that, but we're actually, that's part of the, the reason we're not seeing the quality on the pitch because some of them aren't there. They're not fit. So it was the same, you know, Aguero's been injured. Every team you look throughout them, they've all had more injuries. So, you know, that, I think probably fans should reevaluate their attitudes towards <laughs> these prima donna players who moan about playing three games in a week because you're not getting to see them your your best team on the pitch. We will soon be back back in a time when Liverpool have got a full squad and Man City have signed Erling Haaland and we'll both be we'll all be saying, Oh, isn't this boring? Let's just enjoy it for what it is right now. It's one off weird season with a crazy schedule where some strange things could happen. Let's let's enjoy it and marvel at Southampton being in the top four. You know, and let's 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 accept that this whole big six that's dead. That's I mean, that's been dead for a long time, but it's definitely dead this season. And let's just enjoy it. Let's revel in it. You know, West Ham are playing pretty hard to beat, attritional football at times, but they're six and they bloody well deserve to be there. They've been fantastic. Let's enjoy it. Come on, Hugh. Come on, Hugh. No, you no, can no. do it. I, I, listen, I didn't want to come across as hating football or anything like that. I, I don't want the listeners to feel like I've given up on the game. Don't worry. I'll be here until the end. And I am I am enjoying it. I just wondered about the quality. I also enjoy the championship too. So don't worry about that. Um, all football has its merits for me. Uh, speaking of still being in love, Harry Maguire and John Stones uh, at the weekend shared a big hug, didn't they, at the end of that Manchester derby? Uh, I did see someone remark that it was as passionate as the players got during the match. Um, I, I think it, it sort of came as outrage for Roy Keane, the former Manchester United captain who was looking on. He said, just get down the tunnel. Your job's to win football matches, not be mates with everyone. Some people saying that this is good for England because they could be playing together at, at the Euros and John Stones improved of late. But our question is, when when are hugs appropriate for footballers? Um, Gregor, what was it like for you? Lots of cuddles before, after a game, half-time swapping he shirts? He was definitely a big cuddler, wasn't he? Look at him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm kind of very, very keen in this. I don't want to sound like an old fossil, but... <laughs> you know, Roy Keane has kind of... He loves to sneer about these kind of things. He's the captain, the epitome of old school, isn't he? These old school values. But... When it said a derby, 
And, you know, neither of them have been particularly, well, neither of the teams have been particularly impressive. Um, I do it down the tunnel, absolutely, but in the middle of the pitch, and they were kind of, you know, there was one stage where Stones was almost like giving Maguire a little kind of massage in his shoulders. He was like, you know, how are you doing? There was, a, there was a real kind of touching moment, you know, they're obviously good pals, but have that chat down the tunnel, guys. Al Qaeda with Keen, I think. You know, it's not the biggest, not the end of the world, and I'm probably showing my age. I can't believe that I'm saying that. I'm showing my age. Am I at that age? Maybe I am. But <laughs> this is a separate question. <laughs> but yeah, I think I was kinder with Keen. I think it's fine, but do it down the tunnel. Fans wouldn't like to see that. What we don't realise is that John Stones and Harry Maguire are actually part of a support group that's called English Defenders who made big money moves and had difficult times and that they're actually just bonding. They're, they're, they're used to being in the circle saying, hi, I'm Harry. I joined Manchester United for 75 million. <laughs> a really difficult time. They're like, we're, you put their hand over their mouth and go, look, look, we're surviving, aren't we? We're surviving. <laughs> How are we surviving? We're still, uh, we're still having our chat Tuesday. Yeah, nice one. I mean, yeah, I... I I, for all I'm saying that, I know I'm winding Gregor up about Cuddle. Um, I would not be able to be on this podcast with knowing that my brother is listening uh, and knowing that I once threw a table tennis bat at his head after he beat me uh, and be able to say that, yeah, it's great. Everyone have a cuddle. Yeah, I'm not. I'm pre- fairly competitive. But you wouldn't expect it, would you, from the kind of jovial, friendly chap that I sound like? <laughs> but as surprising as it may be, I'm with Roy Keane on this one. It's it's a match. It's a competition. It's 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 a battle. You're in it to win it, and it, it's you can't have any of those niceties. I'm afraid you can after the final whistle. I mean, they, it's not like they're doing it in the tenth minute. If they're doing it in the tenth minute, then I agree with you. It's inappropriate. But it's all about context. Roy Keane's only cross because he watched a Manchester derby that was not worthy of the label derby. There was no, there was nothing. It was just it was just boring and lacking in passion, and nothing happened. And then he feels oh, they're rewarding themselves with some sort of display of friendliness. What are they doing that for? It's indicative of, of how the derby lacks bite. It's it's not if, if it had been um, 4-3 to Manchester United and rip roaring with lots of last ditch tackles, he'd have allowed them the embrace. And there's nothing in sport. What defines sport, I think, is the fact that you go at you have teams or opponents, you go at each other. Basically, you can only win if you sort of hate your opponent. You have to really go for it. And then when it's over, you have the respect to go to them and embrace them and say something like, well done, or I admire what you did, whether you win or lose. It's about respecting what the opposition have tried to do in a game. It just it just rankled because the match itself wasn't worthy of any emotion, whether it was hugging or snarling. But there's nothing wrong at the final whistle of showing your opponent's respect and love nothing at all as long as you believe when you're facing them you hate them it wasn't respect and love Alison it was like the final scene in a rom-com I mean it was just like it was more than that come on it was an embrace I mean it was like you've got mail I don't know go on Tom but but there wasn't there wasn't any of that I think that's part of what it what it comes down to isn't it that there is chat in the tunnel beforehand you know it's like you say any any of us you know if you play five aside with your mates and you play on opposing teams. You try and kick the crap out of each other for the whole game, and then you have a laugh about it afterwards. I'm fine with the laugh about it afterwards, but in modern football, I think people are searching for that bit of that bit of bite during the game. They're looking for me to throw a table tennis bat at my brother's head. That's what they want. They want that passion. I mean, Greg, like Greg, I mean, you must have played against people during your career who'd consider mates or people who you played with. Surely, is then is the temptation during that game 
right, you're texting each other beforehand, right, I'm going to stick one on you in the first 10 minutes. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. One of my good pals did stick. I'd been at Forest for about five years, and the first time I went back to play Forest, he absolutely smashed me in, like, after five minutes. And uh, and we wouldn't – there's no way, like, we wouldn't, wouldn't have kind of embraced on the pitch afterwards, I don't think. After, you know, in the tunnel – yeah, but I think it does. Alison's right, though. It does depend on the context of the game, but it wasn't a rip roaring 4 3 game. So it kind of does matter that it was this nothing game with very little emotion or fight or anything, really. There was like two decent chances, I can remember. Um, I think that kind of probably does tie into it. You should maybe be a bit disappointed with the way you played. And, you know, it's all about, it's all about the, the kind of image it portrays I would I would suggest maybe maybe it was a tipping point in English football and it now means that England England will now go on to win the Euros because they have found that sense of English camaraderie that they never ever had before when they were all in camps all divided all put club loyalties first and now you've got a, a new generation of England players who love each other and love each other's Englishness more than they love each other's their own teams you're right Alison I blame Gareth Southgate for all of this this is outrageous no, not Gareth again. <laughs> Leave him alone. what Leave I would alone. say is I, I, I look for me it's just like it, uh, these moments just sum up to the fans and show to the fans that it's a job. Like I, I, I always hate to say that, but like that they're at work and sometimes they see a mate and they say hello. And and for me, it's not it's not really not a big deal. You know, no, I just it's not a big deal at all. It's not. I just don't think football fans. You know that they, they see it differently. They totally see it differently. These are two mates that have seen one another having a laugh on the pitch. We shouldn't forget. I always say this because people go like, "It's a derby," and it's like. They play a lot of football matches. They all don't stick in the in their minds the same way that they do for us. You know, it's like, it's just another football game. They're going to have another one on Wednesday, another one on Saturday, one on Boxing Day. And you can't see each and every single one as a be-all and end-all, like we do on the game podcast, of course, because we've got to keep the material coming. It's all about content here, guys. I was going to say, don't drop the illusion that we all, you know, <laughs> hate each other when we're arguing. We need people to think me and Gregor hate each other. We need this to stand. What's going on? Well, guys, let me give you all a big virtual hug. I'll see you all soon. Thanks for being with me on the game podcast. And thank you all for listening as well. A reminder, you can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times for more of the latest news from the footballing world. Just go online, search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game and you'll get yourself one month free. Thank you for being with us. Uh, I will see you once again on Thursday. Rising sea levels, extreme weather patterns, extinctions of species. Our planet needs protecting. I'm Adam Vaughan, the Environment Editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope from The Times, in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. In this podcast, we hear from leading experts from around the world who are committed to finding solutions. These explorers, scientists, entrepreneurs, and citizens are committed to a common goal, to protect our home, Earth. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com